Hello. So, in this career conversations show, today I have the pleasure of hosting Professor Himanshu Rai, the director of IIM Indore. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you so much, Anurag. The objective why uh, I wanted to bring you on the show was that the IIMs remains a storied world, uh, a world of fantasy beyond the reach of a lot of average students in the commerce realm who are the primary audiences of this channel. So I wanted to showcase to them that uh, the professors of IIMs are so humble that they are willing to come on a show and share their discourse on management. And this I'm sure is going to inspire a lot of people to actually take the CAT and probably the GMAT for the one year course and try to fulfill their management education aspirations. Certainly, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to be on such a show. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, strange that you mentioned the part about uh, humility, because I think by very virtue of being a faculty, you have to be humble. So to me, education is all about humility. I mean, if education is not making you humble, then it is something else and it's not education. So by default, all the faculty must necessarily be humble. Yes, sir, absolutely. And I have experienced it during my IIM Ahmedabad one year. But, you know, for the world outside, this is like a storied world where it's fantasy, management, consulting, investment banking, and maybe it's beyond the reach of the... So, sir, to uh, jump straight away uh, into the question. So, before I plunge into the professional part of your journey, can you please tell us about your formative years in Kanpur, the values that you learned from your parents, your siblings, uh, you know, those fond memories of childhood which one would always want to share? Because I'm not sure whether it's anywhere on the internet as of now. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess uh, not much about my formative years out there, but I, I was born and brought up in uh, Kanpur. And I was uh, born to a family where my father was the first person to actually come out of his village and come to the city to, to work. And he started with the ordnance factory, he started his career with the ordnance factories. And when he married my mother, my mother was uh, 16 and a half and she was 17 and a half when she had me. Uh, so, so she had just finished 12th uh, when she got married and she was in BA part one uh, when she had me. And thereafter, she went on to do her uh, BA, B.Ed., M.A., M.Ed., uh, Ph.D., DLIT. So in many ways, my mother and I, we studied together. And that's one of the reasons why I am also interested in Sanskrit literature, because my mother is a Sanskrit professor. So she did her Ph.D. in uh, Sanskrit drama and her DLIT in Dharmshastra, the Vedas. And therefore, right from my childhood, that had a huge impact on me. So number one, the impact that I had was that our house just had books uh, all over. So there were all kinds of books, but predominantly it was Sanskrit literature. So I grew up reading Sanskrit literature. And because my parents were not very comfortable with the English language, they wanted their firstborn, which is me, to be very conversant with English and speak English very well. So I still remember my, my father had kept a British tutor to teach me spoken English. And uh, he, he says that he used to pay her uh, one fourth of his salary. And therefore, I learned English and Sanskrit as my first languages. And subsequently, of course, uh, I, I spoke Hindi because that was a common tongue uh, in, the, in the family. Uh, and then Bhojpuri from my father's side and Punjabi from my mother's side. So I ended up uh, with these uh, languages. Uh, but my formative years in my school, so I have shifted three, I have studied in three schools before I went for my engineering. 
So my formative years were in a convent uh, where I studied for a few years and then that convent decided to turn itself into a girls' school. So I went to another school in Kanpur called uh, Jaipuria, which gave me a lot of uh, rooting in multiple activities. Uh, that's where my, uh, my interest in things like dramatics started. Uh, my first school gave me my roots uh, in debates and extemporaries, and I used to do that uh, on a pretty regular basis. My second school gave me my roots in dramatics and theater. And then for my 11th and 12th, I went to central school because uh, I shifted to a CBSE board since I wanted to prepare for my engineering. But I have extremely fond memories of uh, all the three schools and uh, indeed my formative years in Kanpur. I haven't been able to go back to Kanpur as much as I wish to now, though my parents are still settled there. But, but I do have good memories. So sir, then from Sanskrit to the world of literature, what prompted your interest in science so that you landed up in NIT Suratkal doing your engineering? So Sanskrit literature was something that I loved over and beyond my academic part. And my fascination, I used to love physics. So my favorite subject growing up, even in terms of uh, the sciences, was physics. And because I wanted to understand physics well, uh, it was also mathematics uh, that I really loved, especially the logic part of uh, mathematics. In fact, uh, you, you know, when I was in class 11th, that is when our school got a telescope and uh, it bought a telescope and my physics teacher and I, the two of us were the only ones who used to actually use that telescope to look at uh, some of the uh, planets and, and the rings around the Saturn and so on and so forth. And my first teacher who had a lot of impact on me was also my physics teacher in class 11th and 12th, uh, Mr. Katyar, Mr. Katyar. And because of him, I got fascinated uh, with physics uh, all the more. And we used to love solving problems uh, in, in physics, uh, so much so that I remember that many a times I would go over to his place and we would try to solve a few problems. Sometimes we did not manage to solve those problems. There used to be this book called uh, Resnick and Halliday. And there was another book called I.E. Irodov. And Irodov was far tougher than even Resnick and Halliday. I still remember that. And sometimes we wouldn't be able to solve those problems. And while I would be going back uh, to my house, which was barely you know, 200 meters away from his, I would suddenly hear him shout from his, from his balcony, Himanshu, just hang on, hang on. And he would come down because something would have occurred to him and we would actually solve the problem while standing on the road. And so such was my love for physics. And in fact, at that point of time, I had thought of becoming a theoretical physicist. But when I told this to my parents, uh, my dad laughed me out of that because he didn't know what uh, theoretical physics uh, really meant and he wasn't even sure if theoretical physicists would ever get a job. The Big Bang Theory had not happened. Uh, this, the, so it, it wasn't known to people, it wasn't uh, popular. Uh, and therefore, theoretical physics, my dad didn't see much future in there. And therefore, by default, uh, what used to happen in those times was that if you were good in biology, uh, your parents expected you to become I'm a doctor and if you were good in uh, physics and maths, your parents expected you to be an engineer. So I became an engineer by default, uh, not so much by choice or, or let's say even if it was by choice, it was out of very limited choices that I was given. Be an engineer or a doctor. I didn't like biology. I love physics. And so therefore I became an engineer. 
Okay, that is uh, the actually the problem in the Indian society also. If you are science, it's doctor, engineer. If you are commerce, it's a chartered accountant. Some aspiring people will go for an MBA. So oh, absolutely. Then, and by the way, so my brother, my younger brother, who's, who's six and a half years younger to me, he loved biology, so he became a doctor. And simply because that was the other choice which was given to him. And he continues to be a doctor, a medical oh, practitioner. Amazing. Sir, then you spent like nine years in Tata Steel before. Uh, so uh, you shifted into academics through the FPM route. And that would have been a major career transition. So uh, Tata yeah. Steel uh, IL-5 officer was, I'm not, because I'm also ex-Tata Steel 2009 to 11. So I was an IL-5 officer. So uh, there... Uh, like, what was your experiences in Tata Steel, the nine years, and then how this suddenly, was it like a sudden transition? Was it well thought out that, yes, eventually I want to get into academics and hence uh, the FPM program at IIM Ahmedabad? So, first of all, Tata Steel is an amazing company to work with. So, I loved uh, my eight and a half years in Tata Steel. I joined Tata Steel as GT, as, uh, as you already mentioned. And then I spent several years and while I was working with Tata Steel, I also conducted about uh, half a dozen plays. I staged half a dozen plays, directed and produced two documentary films, uh, conducted about 50 odd quizzes across the country, uh, similar number of Antakshris, despite the fact that I'm not a good singer, but what I used to lack in my singing skills, I used to make up for it with probably my sense of humor, which is still pretty twisted. And all of this I did, apart from, of course, uh, making steel. So Tata Steel gave me that freedom to actually pursue my interests while I was also doing work for Tata Steel. So that was one of the great things. And Jamshedpur is an amazing place. So I have very amazing experiences, a lot of friends over there. And Jamshedpur still remembers me. So every time I go back to Jamshedpur, I am always received a lot of warmth. So people have a, a, a big heart there and they also have a very good memory because they continue to uh, be my friends. What led to this transition was a particular incident which actually told me as to what is it that I really wanted to do with my life. So right from my early days so as a GT, we had to necessarily do a trek. And I was fortunate enough that when I did my first trek uh, right after joining Tata Steel, I found my mountaineering guru and I couldn't have asked for a better teacher to take me to the mountains, Bachendri Pal, who was the first Indian woman to climb Everest. So she happens to be my mountaineering guru. And of course, now she's a good friend of mine. And the moment I went to the Himalayas, I, I fell in love with the Himalayas. I, I thought that I belonged there. And I still consider Himalayas as my spiritual abode. And I, uh, abode, and I keep telling people that, look, my name is Himanshu. I'm a part of the Himalayas. Himka Anshu man. And this was, uh, again, this was in about at 1998 when I was uh, doing a trek and I was sitting on the top of a Himalayan peak uh, and reading a book. I'll not take you through the details of that story, but while reading that book, it suddenly struck me as to what did I really want to do with my life. And the moment that became clear to me, I came down and I started wondering and I started thinking, how do I get to my vision? How do I fulfill my vision? And I realized that an academic life would probably take me to my vision much faster than any other life. And that was the day when I decided to shift to academia. Uh, 
wrote CAT. Uh, first of all, I found out as to you know what are the ways of uh, doing a, a program such as this, how to go for higher education, what to really be studying, so on and so forth. Figured it out, wrote CAT, uh, applied uh, to had applied to IIM Ahmedabad only. Thankfully, got in because after as soon as I got the CAT results and when I got the interview call from IIM Ahmedabad, I put in my papers at Tata Steel. And everybody around me was furious. They said, you, you need to wait uh, till the results come out. But my whole point was that now that I've figured out what is it that I want to do with my life, I don't want to waste a single minute. And I was pretty sure at that point of time, I guess that uh, bravado also comes from, from the kind of an age that I was in, that I thought I could conquer the world. But fortunately, I got through IIM Ahmedabad and thus began my journey at IIM Ahmedabad. So, uh, in terms of IIM Ahmedabad, uh, since uh, it always gives you the red bricks, give you very fond memories, Louis Khan Plaza, RJM Auditorium, the professors. So, what would be your best takeaways from, and say so it would be like four or five years on campus because of the FPM. Five years, yeah. Five years. So, uh, yeah. So, sir, some uh, best of your memories from IIM Ahmedabad. I had a, I have some amazing memories of uh, IIM Ahmedabad. Be that, uh, be they be uh, about the kind of people that I met. So my my batch, so my PGP batch was 2000, uh, 2002. And we are still in uh, close touch with each other. We are still in contact with each other. And we keep talking about those amazing days. Uh, I have some amazing memories when we used to make those group projects. And since I had brought in experience, I, I had industry experience of eight and a half years, my group mates looked up to me to come up with something uh, special when it came to class discussions and all. And uh, the, I know that many of you may already be aware that there's something called a challenge CP concept uh, at IIM Ahmedabad, where you are supposed to bring in multiple elements that people challenge you to bring in a class participation. A lot of times it was expected of me to lead uh, that challenge CP and bring in completely different perspectives into the classroom. From there to the kind of events that we used to have, the cultural events, I still remember I participated in the debate uh, for the first time at IIM Ahmedabad, that is, when I participated for the first time at IIM Ahmedabad, uh, I, I won the debate. And after that, the organizers, which were obviously my batchmates, they came to me and said, Baba, that was my college nickname. You are not going to be a participant from next time onwards. You're going to be a judge because we need to give a fair chance to the other people. So all of that camaraderie and, of course, uh, the Frisbee games at uh, Louis Kahn Plaza, uh, we also had a dramatic team. And I still remember we put up a play which was with my PGP batch uh, and there were none, which is an Agatha Christie play. And that, that got extremely good reviews. We, 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 we put it up for three days in a row. So one for the outsiders, one for people inside and one for the families uh, within IIM Ahmedabad. So, so there are lots and lots of memories, both in terms of uh, the faculty, my, the, the students, my batchmates uh, and the things that we did over there. So, uh, so then uh, you landed up uh, with those uh, cherished FPM uh, because uh, now that time like PhD was not there because of the IM Act uh, prohibitions. You landed up as a professor and uh, between then and now it's almost like uh, one and a half decades and you've taught at like XLRI and then uh, I am Lucknow, SDA Bokoni where you the dean and then I am Indore. 
how have you seen management education evolve in the classroom in terms of the stakeholder expectations the discussions uh, so at im indore uh, how has this happened and especially like hr is a subject your core uh, areas of interest which i read online is conflict management and negotiation so sir please tell us about that and do you award marks for class participation to your students because <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to award marks for class participation, but that depends on the subject. So I'll, I'll, I'll take you very quickly through my journey. So uh, as soon as I finished uh, my PhD at IIM Ahmedabad, the first institution that I joined was XLRI, because XLRI was the quickest one of the block to give me a job offer. The IIMs uh, used to take a lot of time at that point of time. I, I think we still do. We, we take a lot of time in reverting to the candidates. Uh, responding to the candidates and so i started my career with xlri and it's a brilliant place to start your career with for two reasons one i was back in jamshedpur which is where i was in my tata steel days so i was going back to a very familiar place and second when it comes to hr xlri is probably one of the best institutions in the world to start your career in because the kind of opportunities it gives you as a teacher and as a student because you also learn from your peer group as well as uh, from your own students so i cut my teeth in the academic world at xlri and then when i shifted to iim lucknow i think one of the differences between the two places was that xlri is hr focus uh, one but there is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, let's say camaraderie between the faculty and the students which we do not find to that extent uh, in the iams in the iams the relationship is still more formal whereas in xlri it's more informal so there used to be a lot of for example social events which uh, the faculty and the students used to come together the faculty used to participate in a lot of social events even uh, when they were student driven and then third the faculty at xlri themselves used to organize a lot of social events for the groups in the campus in fact there was something called if i recall correctly xlri campus club and one fine day i was told that i have been elected as the president of the xlri campus club and i said hey hang on i never participated in any elections i never volunteered i never gave my name this is that's not how it works basically the the community members they decide who they want to be so they give votes whether you are interested or not you have to take this up but but that was a kind of a, a very different kind of culture that we had at xlri and when when you come to iams it's more formal again when you go to when i went to bakoni for example bakoni has more of an informal culture because you have the italian culture which is brought in so there is much more closeness uh, between the students and the faculty and you don't have that sense of power distance which we have both in our country as well as our our education system itself so for example in bakoni nobody addressed me as sir they would either call me dean rai or they would call me by my first name and it was absolutely fine with me i do understand that many people are not very comfortable many of my faculty colleagues are not very comfortable being addressed by the first names but then i guess it's a matter of choice of the individuals how they would be like to be addressed uh, i think everyone has a, 
uh, has the right to tell the rest of the world as to how would they like to be addressed. So one cannot sit in value judgment about which is right and which is wrong or which is good or which is bad. Be that as it may, this was a difference. So far as management, and I'm Indore, of course, uh, here, uh, what, what we are trying to do is we are trying to get some kind of a balance between this very formal structure and between informal structures in the sense that I try and communicate with my students, with, uh, with all the students uh, of the institute as often as I possibly can. I try to listen to them and I make sure that whatever feedback, et cetera, that they have to give is actually taken very, very seriously and changes are brought about in the system to address uh, those feedbacks. So far as education is concerned, I think management education as such has evolved over a period of uh, time. And I wouldn't say that it's different across different colleges, but I would say it's evolved over time. So it must have evolved across all the colleges that I've been a part of. And by that, what I mean is that earlier management education was very functional. So we spoke about, whenever we spoke about subjects, whenever we spoke about electives in particular, the first year where you have the core subjects is always very, very functional. So you will have necessarily marketing, OB, HR, operations, uh, finance, accounting, so on and so forth, strategy, so on and so forth. But when it came to electives, I remember in the early days, so when I joined academia in 2005, even the electives were very, very functional. So you would have advanced finance or banking, investment banking, so on and so forth. Likewise, in HR, you would have performance appraisal, you'd have team building, you would have subjects like hiring, recruitment, selection, training and development, so on and so forth. But there was no scope or, or experimentation which was done on what could possibly be useful for us to create leaders. So we were creating managers at that point of time. And over a period of time, what we have realized is that not only do we have to give functional education, but we also have to stimulate our students intellectually, number one. Number two, our job is not just to create managers, but our job is to create responsible leaders. And therefore, even the kind of offerings which were out there have changed. So when my, the first elective, for example, when I joined IAM Lucknow, the first elective that I offered was negotiation, which wasn't there till that point of time. So it was the first time that somebody was offering a negotiation, although it's a skill-based course. Uh, the second elective that I offered there with another colleague of mine at IAM Lucknow was a subject called leadership through literature, where we picked up pieces of literature and by analyzing each of those pieces. So we picked up eight pieces of literature, eight books of literature, and each book had a theme attached to it. So for example, let's say a book like Siddharth by Herman Hesse would have the theme passion and compassion attached to it. A book like Mudra Rakshas, which is a play by Vishak Dutt, uh, narrating Chanakya's story and his Annihilation of Nand Kings would have the theme uh, ends versus means attached to them, attached to it. And thereby by discussing these books and by going through the narrative through a certain framework, we would evolve frameworks of leadership and figure out as to how these themes are still relevant and how they need to be a part of the discourse of leadership. The third elective that I launched over there is called Justice, Ethics and Morality, where we looked at the philosophy of fairness. And then the fourth elective that I launched was something called FIRE, which is Framing Identities and Roles Through Exploration, where we took students out of the campus 
where they stayed for three days outside and through conversations and through something which is called process work, we help them in realizing who they are and more importantly, why they are whoever they are. And thus it was a, a journey to discovering your own self. Now, the whole point is that the acceptance of such courses, that has come over a period of time. Because each of these courses has a very different set of pedagogical tools. For example, when I teach negotiation, I use a lot of simulation. When I started in 2006, there were no such thing as simulations. There were no such thing as role plays which were used. At the moment, exercise is something, but not really hardcore role plays. Likewise, when I talk about, uh, say, justice, ethics, and morality, we use a lot of uh, dialogue. So there are a lot of dialogues, there are a lot of debates. We divide the class into two groups. We take a lot of, we ask people to defend whatever their uh, viewpoint is, so on and so forth. So all of these pedagogical tools have actually got more acceptance over a period of time. And if uh, your question on HR, once again, as I said, that HR earlier was concerned only about the functional elements of HR, like recruitment, selection, training, development, reward management, performance management, so on and so forth. But now, when we talk about HR, we think of HR in terms of something that drives leadership. And therefore, you will find many courses on leadership, uh, many courses which are, uh, which, which I've got many courses in communication, which are also becoming a part of uh, HR. And likewise, uh, some courses which actually help in the overall decision-making and understanding of human beings for the people rather than being limited to a particular function. So I think the management education has evolved both in terms of content, in terms of acceptance of the courses, and in terms of acceptance of newer pedagogical tools. And sir, I think uh, you spoke in similar uh, line on your TEDx talk also when you spoke about ethical leadership, because that has been an area of interest. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, sir, coming to one question that in terms of MBA, uh, why has and what is your view about this fact that MBA education over the year has become like uh, MBA schools are now viewed as placement factories? Mm. That is one factor. And uh, yeah, so one, what about uh, this factor that the student comes in? So you tell us that, okay, this is an IM, a new IM, XLRI. Okay, what is the median CTC? Okay, what is the average CTC batch highest? Uh, international salary. I mean, that is how the media has painted B-School education as just being facilitators of people to get into uh, a management consulting firm and IB. That's it. So what is your view on that? Well, I have a very definitive view. In fact, in one of the, which was done uh, last year, so I, I was asked uh, the same question and I said, uh, management institutions, B-Schools are not placement agencies. And this is something that we at IMS truly believe in. And when that interview was published, of course, there were two categories of reactions. One which said that, well, that, that is how it should be. The other who said that it's very hypocritical of IMS to claim that B-Schools are not placement agencies for the simple reason that why do they talk about the placement uh, statistics? Now, what we need to understand is that any educational institution is always driven by its mission. So for example, when I talk about IIM Indore, our mission is to be a contextually relevant world-class school that creates socially conscious leader. Now, this being our mission, our entire emphasis, therefore, is element. 
that we impart learning, we facilitate learning so that we can create these kind of leaders, which we are claiming our mission in our mission statement. The fact that these leaders should also be placeable, the fact that they should also be employable is also true. But it, this is not the main purpose for what, why we exist, because you can find a job not necessarily going through a business school route. You can find a job through any means. You don't have to necessarily come to a business school. You don't go to a management institution. And therefore, what we have to understand is that while one of the elements in any degree that you go for, in any education that you go for, is, of course, employability, the main at the core institution at the core of any program at the core of any course will always be the learning outcome what is it that you want this person to know this person to be and this person to do once a person has undergone this particular course or program the emphasis on placement comes simply because of two reasons one is that a lot of courses in india do not have employability. A lot of programs, a lot of institutions do not have employability clearly because I think what they teach is not relevant uh, to the industry or the kind of skills that they try to inculcate are not the skills uh, which are there in, in demand. And two, ours happens to be a developing country where a lot of people are still below the poverty line. A lot of, we, we have this very big middle class for which if I look at the Maslow's uh, hierarchy, we are still talking about the fundamental needs, the basic needs, the physiological needs not being met or the safety and security needs not being met. And therefore, this gets highlighted. However, so far as my idea or my philosophy about education is concerned, to me, education is about changing people. Education is about transforming people and making them what the Institute wants them to become. Everything else is a byproduct. Absolutely, sir. So, one uh, important question since uh, you now are in IIM Indore is that this five year program of the IIM Indore, so a lot of uh, youngsters feel that this is a shortcut uh, to get into the world of the IIMs. Uh, so, you don't have to take the CAT and then this course converges with the, the prestigious two year program and you get the same placements. The critics otherwise uh, will say on the contrary. So, so what has been your experience with this course at IIM Indore? See, first of all, let me point out the big fallacy in assuming that uh, it's easy way to get into an IIM for the simple reason that if you look at CAT, you just have to do some basic number crunching. 2.4 lakh candidates write CAT and the combined seats uh, among all IMs and among uh, some of the good business schools would be about seven, 8,000. But you still have seven, 8,000, let's say 8,000 seats for 2.4 lakh candidates. If you look at the IPM admission test, 30,000 candidates write the IPM admission test and we have 130 seats. And therefore, if you look at the ratio of the number of seats that we have versus the number of candidates who write the test, it's far, far less as compared to CAT. So IPM admission test is a far more difficult test so far as 
comparison with CAT is concerned, or for that matter, comparison with any other test is concerned. So as it stands today, the IPM admission test of IIM Indore is the most difficult test to actually crack, purely in terms of uh, the number work. The second part is that the reason why we started with this integrated program and management was because we thought that at the graduate under, undergraduate level, we needed to have a more holistic education and we thought that those people would do far better as MBA students as compared to people coming from some other stream. Because otherwise, you know that it's predominantly a male engineer baston when it comes uh, to the IIM. I mean, that's predominantly what we have. When I joined uh, IIM Ahmedabad in 2000, we had uh, probably 90% uh, men and the same number of engineers, 90% males and 90% uh, engineers in our batch. Uh, at Iam Indore, we have managed to uh, have a ratio of about 40% uh, of women. Now, if you look at our IPM, the Integrated Program and Management, in the first three years, what we follow is the PPE model plus something. So we teach philosophy, we teach political science, we teach economics, and we teach statistics and maths. And beyond all of this, we give them inputs in art and literature. So you have inputs in theater, you have inputs in languages, so on and so forth. So therefore, what we are creating is a bunch of extremely well-rounded individuals. And I'm so delighted about this particular program that I'm absolutely unwilling to change the first three years, though there had been suggestions that let's try and make it more quantitative. No, not at all. We need well-rounded people who are great at quantitative techniques, but who are also very good when it comes to humanities, social sciences, politics, economics, philosophy, etc. And I'm so glad that our confidence in this particular program has actually borne fruit. So if you look at the program today, amongst, say, the 10 toppers that we have in the postgraduate program, at least four of them are from the IPM program. So these are the people who are amongst the toppers. And even if you look at uh, the salaries that they get, they are very, very comparable to the salaries that people who have work experience or who have come through some other route, who have come through the CAT route to our program, uh, uh, what they get. So clearly we are doing very well, both in terms of academic performance and both in terms of what they thought would be the industry acceptance of uh, people coming to this program. So I'm extremely thrilled. And in fact, I believe that this is where, this is how the education needs to go. So what I tried at an MBA level by trying in certain subjects, which were not your functional subjects, but which I thought would give a more well-rounded personality to people. Now here we have that being done in the class, in the undergraduate level itself. So one question, another, which I often get from aspirants is let's say you are a commerce student. You've already done like a company secretary or a chartered accountant or a cost accountant. So then in your view, what is more advisable to go for this? two-year program because the perceived entry barrier is much higher the cat so because india people have that obsession with this number or take some work cakes and then go to the one-year program now one-year program the challenge is that the entry level might not perceived entry level might not be that high and uh, difficulty and but the point is that there are qualified applicants not like cat where every graduate in the country gives so with this a lot of uh, someone i often encounter this question ca after CA, should I go for a two-year MBA or a one-year MBA? So what would be your advice on that? See, my advice is, now this is coming from a personal space. 
uh, not not from an institutional space but i have always been of the view that the one year or the two year decision is not so much material as is the decision that whether you should go for an mba program as soon as you finish your undergrad or should you work and my personal opinion my view is that you should work for a few years and only then go for an mba for a, for an mba course because then you are able to correlate a whole lot of things which are taught in the classroom with some of the work experience that you have and if you are going for an mba course within say 2 or 3 years of working in that case a 2 year program makes more sense and if you are going for an mba course after 7 or 8 years of working then a one year course is good enough sir uh, a limited question i know you have a very very uh, defined view on this gender uh, part so i am indore is uh, has got 40% female and I, it's the highest in the country you were covered in the et also a couple of a few months ago so how does so through affirmative measures let's say we have brought in more female in the campus now in terms of the education in terms of the placement and the entire management education how does that help as compared to your male bastion engineer dominated b school life a couple of decades ago does that actually make a difference it makes a huge difference first of all it makes a very big difference into the kind and the quality of the discussions that you have in the classroom so i am indore follows a case method predominantly as uh, the pedagogical tool in a case method you have to make a certain decision so the case is based around a certain management uh, decision which needs to be made and the case outlines a particular situation that the protagonist finds himself or herself in and then subsequently a decision needs to be made now and we say that the mission of iim indore is to create responsible leaders now responsible leaders by very nature of the definition of the word responsible need to be inclusive how can you have inclusive decision making being brought into the classroom or subsequently into the corporate world unless your classroom itself is inclusive for example if you have 90% engineers and 90% males in a particular classroom what kind of decisions would they make their decisions would be of a similar kind because the thought process is similar they look at their world view is very very similar you need people in the classroom whose world views are different you need people from diverse background you need people from diverse gender you need people from diverse strata of the society so you need people from diverse academic background so all kind the more diversity that you bring into your classroom the richer the classroom discussions would be and the kind of leaders that you would subsequently produce because of this rich discussion that brings in multiple views into the classroom those leaders are going to be far more inclusive so for example you have a good number of women in the workforce how can a male engineer make a decision about let's say how much maternity leave or for that matter how much paternity leave should be given to a, a to a person once a person is out there or what kind of uh, what what kind of decision making should you take to bring in strategic elements or to manage public finances in rural areas now unless you have somebody who has actually experienced be living in a rural area that you, you you will not get that point of view in a classroom and therefore to me diversity is not important for the sake of filling in some number or to get x number of people into the classroom it's an imperative 
so that you can actually create leaders for this country and for that matter for this world whose worldview is far more broader than the worldview which is created by a very limited set of people who come from one unique background. So as we head towards the closure of this thing, uh, in terms of COVID-19, sir, has sent jitters amongst management education aspirants, the ones who are already into the system like first year, second year, as well as others also who are thinking that, so how do you think COVID, so is it just a short term irrespective of whether the recovery is W-shaped or V-shaped or L-shaped? Do you think it's going to change uh, the world forever in some way or the other? Because this is a contemporary topic. See, many people have been talking about this new normal. The only new normal that I see, which, which, which I envisage, is that people are going to be more careful about things like personal hygiene. People are going to be more careful about their lifestyles. And people are going to be more careful about the kind of uh, things that they consume. Uh, you know, their, their food habits, uh, etc. I don't think it's going to change the way we look at the world for the simple reason that this was, this is neither the first pandemic, nor is it going to be the last. This is neither the first crisis, nor is it going to be the last. And we human beings are extremely resilient. The only thing that we need to ensure is that we don't fritter away the lessons that this pandemic is teaching us. So the lessons that we must focus on the environment, the more you mess up with the environment, the more environment is going to react and bring on pandemics of this kind. And therefore, issues like climate change, issues like uh, certain aspects of globalization, which actually lead to increasing inequalities, which have hitherto been absolutely, if, if not absolutely ignored, not having been paid much attention to. These issues are going to become pertinent. And this, is, this COVID-19 is just a reminder that, look, there are these things that exist and these need to be addressed while everything is hunky-dory. So I've always believed that, you know, out of these pandemics come an opportunity for us to reflect on whatever it is that we are doing. So, you know, a Hindi kahabat where they say, sumiran sab kare, sukhme kare na koe. Jo sukhme sumiran kare, to dukh kahe ko To dukh kahe ko so while things are hunky-dory, if we make sure that we pay attention to each of these things, these very extremely important elements, especially looking at nature and environment, we would not have these kind of things. So I'm just hoping, so this is more of a hope rather than some kind of, uh, uh, you know, fortune telling, saying that this is how the world is going to be, because we are also, in, you know, one of the banes that human beings have, that our memories are very short. And the moment you come out of a problem after a few months, it just uh, goes away and you go back to your uh, regular life, so on and so forth. I'm just hoping that this is a clarion call, that this is a big call, and we are going to pay more attention to things that we had not paid so far. Fair point, sir. Sir, uh, one question which I have in my mind ever since I started following you on LinkedIn was that, sir, how do you look so young? So what is the formula? <laughs> Is it trekking? Is it yoga? Is it music? Reading? That entire composite uh, things which help you relax. So what exactly is your fitness mantra? One word to say. It's, it's, it's a combination of... Uh, 
it's it's a combination of all of these uh, my my mantra is obviously yoga yoga works for me when it comes to exercising not that i don't do other forms of exercise i i also love to go to the gym once in a while i also love to do push ups uh, uh, once in a while or do crunches once in a while but predominantly yoga is what really uh, fascinates me and i've been practicing that uh, as a child and i've grown up uh, practicing yoga so that is something that keeps me fit but more importantly what i think keeps me fit is is that i'm a happy person i like to be happy and i like doing things which make me happy himalayas make me happy when i go to the himalayas it's it's almost like as if they talk to me i get a, i get a feeling which is completely out of this world i have some amazing experiences and of course uh, they, they keep you fit because when you climb or when you trek uh you also need that element of physical fitness but it is more that i find peace i find answers to a lot of my questions i get that space and time to reflect and i think that is the key that sense of fulfillment and the sense of joy that you get out of doing all of those things and you know if you were to ask me what should you do or what should anybody else do i would say find out what is it that works for you for me yoga works find out what works for you if if for you pilates works do pilates i have some friends who say that running works for them that when they run and when they go beyond 5 or 6 kilometers running they get into some kind of a zone where the mind becomes absolutely free so i'm not going to become normative and say this is what will work for others for me it's a combination of all of these things that you mentioned so i love the himalayas i love yoga i love music and i love reading and i think this is what keeps me young and of course most importantly i love teaching and when you're teaching you're always surrounded by a group of youngsters and that rubs on to you as well you think young you feel young you look young uh, and i think there is something mystical about mountaineering because i had a detailed discussion with professor erul disuz also who is our director at yeah. ima and he is also an avid mountaineer and trekking and i asked him like how are you so calm and composed and his answer always is the mountains so whenever i am stressed i think of the mountains and it all goes away because i'm sure that as a director so you would be grappling with so many complexities on a day to day basis that you would need to have some sort of a recoup mechanism so glad that so uh, sir my final question to you what would be your word of advice to youngsters with respect to their career life what life has taught you that's it so by you know again it's very difficult for me to give a very generic advice uh, to people i'm sure people are smart enough and now they have lots of opportunities uh, to make up uh, to 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 look at what is it that they want to do with their lives what do what do they want to do with their lives but my specific uh, suggestion to all the people is that this world has a lot of opportunities don't try to live the expectations of somebody else don't try to live somebody else's dreams that can be your family that can be people close to you live your dreams so first of all have a vision about what is it that you wish to do with your life what is the kind of a world that you wish to live in and then go on and try to create that world because the moment you have a vision the moment you have a clarity that this is what you want to do with your life passion will automatically come the second thing that you need is that you need to be passionate about it i mean remember just by dreaming alone you cannot achieve whatever it is that you have set out to achieve you will have to work hard and that working hard will come out 
only when you have a very clear sense of direction as to where is it that you're going, if you're passionate about doing that thing. And the third thing that you must remember is that there is no substitute to hard work. And not just hard work, but you need grit because you may be working hard, but let's say if you fall down once, that should not deter you. So you need grit and you need resilience that even if you fall down once or twice, you should get up and continue to be persistent. So continue to be persistent. So to me, I would say purpose, passion, and persistence. These are the three keys which can make your life successful and more importantly, which can make you feel fulfilled rather than having only a sense of achievement. Superb, sir. Amazing ways uh, to end this great conversation, sir. I'm so thankful to you that uh, you spared time out of your busy schedule for conversing with the youngsters. Thank you so much, sir. My pleasure, Anurag. All the best. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye.